Good morning. We are always glad to have you here this morning. We're thankful for your presence, and it is always our joy to be together and in the presence of our Father, giving him the glory and the honor that he certainly deserves. We have been discussing our rights and privileges, I believe is the way we've been talking about that, rights and privileges as ours because of Jesus, that Christ has made us free. In fact, Paul would say, for freedom he has set us free. And that you are an individual who is autonomous and God has blessed you and I and everyone else with these rights that belong to us and we should not infringe upon each other's. And we've been discussing this. And last week we talked about those rights come with responsibilities. And it's not for somebody else to enforce those responsibilities upon us. It's really what God has given every one of us the responsibility to do in relationship to him. And we looked at James chapter 4 and noticed 10 things that James mentions with regards to each one of our obligation to God and self. Things like submitting yourself to God, resisting the devil, and drawing near to God, and humbling ourselves in the presence of God. And all of these become our responsibility individually to do these things ultimately for God and for self. And because then that brings us to our thoughts this morning, we have responsibilities to each other. And the epistles of our New Testament largely deal with this. They talk about the Jew and the Gentile and their relationship to one another, that they've both been reconciled into God. And as a result of that, they have responsibilities as to how they are to behave toward one another. And so the Bible makes the case that because of Christ, and so what we'll do this morning is look at some passages that teach this and then talk about from there how they were to respond to what God has done. This is what God was doing in the world. If you have your Bibles, notice Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin there. We'll look at other passages. And if I don't say it now, I'll say it later, or maybe I'll just say it multiple times. The reason that you have so much material on this subject is because it is largely the focus of the New Testament. There were other issues that the church faced, always worldliness. That's always an issue. But also the, the Old Testament and how they related to that, that was an issue of, of, of talk but primarily, it was this, the Jew and the Gentile being reconciled into God. That is the emphasis. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to it here in Ephesians 3 as the mystery. Notice with me, beginning in verse number 1, Paul's talking about this and his explanation. Now, we're in the middle of a six-chapter book, and we're in chapter 3, and so Paul has already said some things that are germane to the discussion, and this chapter opens by Paul saying, for this reason. So he said things relative to this, but he explains, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he says, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, 
as I wrote afore in few words. And so he's broached the subject already back in chapter 1 and verse 9 specifically, maybe as early as 7, 8, 9, but he's talked about it. He says, I've already written about it briefly, but now he goes into more detail about that mystery. He says, which in other ages, or he says in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. As you're reading the Bible, please appreciate you're going to read it from Genesis to Revelation. It's going to unfold a little bit at a time. Paul would say, in part, we know in part. The reason we know it in part is because God is revealing it in part. We know a little bit at a time. By the time the Apostle Paul is writing and preaching and teaching, the mystery has been revealed. And as he says these words, he looks back and he says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed, being revealed, to his holy apostles and prophets. What is the mystery? He explains it in verse number six. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles, you'll notice what he says next, should be fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If I were to ask you if they're fellow partakers, with whom are they partaking? If they're the Gentiles, with whom are they fellow partakers? With whom are they fellow members? That would be the Jews. The Gentiles are going to be brought into the body the Jews are going to be brought into the body. In fact, the gospel is the means by which both groups will get there. Romans 1, 16 and 17 would come to mind, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You'll see that same language here. In fact, you'll see that language all throughout the New Testament, because this is the point that's being made. God was not in the world doing multiple things, not, not 50, not 100, not 1,000 things. Nope, just one. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. And Paul would say, speaking of the apostles, he's given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. What is it that reconciles? The gospel. Who does it reconcile? Everybody. Where does it reconcile them? In one body. Look back in chapter 2 in this book and notice what he says in verse number 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, and so imagine the church at Ephesus receiving this letter. The Ephesians were Gentiles, and they were formerly lost. And as a result of that, Paul is asking them, now that you're Christians, look backward with me. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way the Gentiles were. What changed that? Verse number 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who have been formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Here were the Gentiles outside of Christ, no hope without God in the world. Now they are in Christ. Well, what about the Jews? Let's keep reading. Verse number 14, Paul says, For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace. Whose peace? Our peace between the Jew and the Gentile. What has he done? He has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He took the law and commandments out of the way, Colossians 2.14, nailing it to his cross. Verse 15 says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to what end? So that in himself he might make the two into one new man and thus establishing peace. What would he do in such a condition, verse 16, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity? So what have we talked about so far? We're talking about what God has done in Christ for the whole world, for the Gentiles and for the Jews. And he has brought them together in one body. That body, of course, is the church. Ephesians 1, 22, 23, he has put all things under his feet, given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Verses 11 through 16, the Gentiles were brought near into one body. The Jews have been brought near into that one body. They have been put at peace, and God has reconciled both unto God. Chapter 3 and verse 6, this was the mystery. This is what God was doing all along. We don't have time to read it this morning, but if we were to continue to chapter 3, we would find in verses 9, 10, and 11, it's the eternal purpose of God. When was this plan in the mind of God? Eternally. When you and I talk about the Bible, you and I talk about what God is doing in the world as you and I are reading it, the book of Ephesians, like Romans, Galatians, Colossians, and others, is explaining this is what God was doing. God was reconciling all of humanity unto himself in one body through Jesus Christ's shed blood on the cross, and the gospel is that message that takes all people and puts them into one body. And God is glorified by so doing. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly and exceedingly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus to all generations, world without end. Amen. What the Scriptures will do is argue this, and by argue I simply mean it will set forth the evidence. It will state it and state it and state it, and it might say it in one way, three ways, ten ways. It just will keep continually saying this over and over and over and over again. Now, once it's established and said, the apostles will then address the people who are the recipients of that gospel. Those who have obeyed it, they will then tackle, how do we treat each other now? To appreciate this, you have to appreciate 
how they treated each other before Jesus. You have to understand they were at odds with each other. The, the, the woman at, at, in John 4 is genuinely surprised that Jesus, being a man and a Jew, is actually talking to her. <laughs> How are you even doing that? If you read John 4, you will see the apostles are also surprised. When they come back with the food, they look and they say, he's speaking to this, and nobody said anything. Nobody said anything about him talking to her. Peter says, you know, no unclean thing has ever entered into my mouth. And to Cornelius, he says, you know, it's not lawful for a man that is a Jew to come into the company of another nation. It's not even lawful. We don't even do that. They were enemies. In fact, holding your mind, one of the prophecies about the coming kingdom is that it will be a kingdom of peace. And that in this kingdom, they will beat their plow their swords into plowshares. It will, they will not learn war anymore in my holy mountain. In the kingdom, they're going to treat each other in such a way that it will bear no resemblance to what they were. This is the way the New Testament talks about the church. Notice a couple of passages. Look there in Galatians chapter, well, let's look first in Ephesians 4 since you're there. You were just there in 3, 20 and 21, I trust. Notice Ephesians 4. In fact, the verse opens with, therefore. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Implore who? Well, who has he talked to in 1, 2, and 3? These people who have been reconciled in this one body. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How would you walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, sowing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Why? Verse number four, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. When you see that, please, and, and while it's true, obviously, God is the God of the whole world. That's obviously true. But stay there in the context and notice who's Paul talking to. He's been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled into one body. And he is saying there's one God and Father of us. There's one God and Father over all, through all, and grab the last part, in you all. There is one God we all serve in the kingdom. There's only one. Now, obviously it's true beyond that. Of course it is. But contextually, he was talking to the brethren and trying to get them to understand, we are the same in every metric in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse number 26, Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Who are God's children? Paul says, you are. 
You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ or clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It's because of that that you and I would strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But there were challenges to this. There were racial challenges. After all, these were Jews and these were Gentiles. Their past religions were challenges. This was Judaism. Uh, this was idolatry. There was economic or social standings. James talks about the rich and the poor. There were varied groups of individuals, and as a result of that, there were different responses to the gospel. There were the Jews, and there was the Gentiles. And then it was those who came from both groups into Christ. Notice Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He begins in verse 18, really, talking about the cross of Christ. What happened when the apostles went out into the world and preached the gospel to Jewish people? What happened when they went out and preached the gospel to Gentile people? Largely speaking, both rejected it. Largely speaking, the Jews turned a, a deaf ear and it caused them to stumble. It was a stumbling block for them. And to the Gentiles, it was just foolishness. Listen to Paul's explanation of that beginning there in verse number 22. He says, for indeed, the Jews ask for signs. The Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What happens when we preach that to the Jews? He says, to the Jews, a stumbling block. Well, what happens when you preach it to the Gentiles? He says, to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But, but there were individuals within both groups who wanted to hear it. There were individuals in both groups who wanted to obey it. And so Paul says then further, but to those who are called, called from where? Both Jews and Greeks. He says Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, they had some success in some of the synagogues. Those people obeyed the gospel. Where were they put? They were reconciled into one body. They had success among the Gentiles. Okay, some of them obeyed. Where did they go? Well, they were translated out of darkness and into the kingdom. And so now within that body, you have people who have come from Jews and Greeks, and they are now called Christians. They have been called out of their particular groups, called out of the world, and called into Christ. They have now left their families, left their cultures, left their comfort, most importantly, left sin. And now they are the family of God. 
When you're reading through the New Testament, please don't take the admonitions that you're reading as simple suggestions to be good people in the world. You just go out into the world and you be good. That's not the, that's not the emphasis at all. No, the emphasis is you're trying to be like Christ within, and then you're going out into the world to reflect Christ out there. Who is it that gets the first goodness of these changed people? With whom do they first interact? Where is the expression of all of this change? It's within. Galatians 6.10 says, As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. It's with this mindset that I would urge you this morning to listen to the exhortation. Listen to the things that the writers say because that's what's behind the writing. The exhortations to and the responsibility toward one another primarily and then secondarily by letting your light shine out in the world. Have your Bibles. Notice a few passages with me then to that end. Notice Romans chapter 12. Let's begin there. There are two in here we'll notice. Of course, we could have spent the whole chapter, whole time this morning in Romans 12 because that's how much practical information Paul would have. And in this book, like the others, he spent these first 11 chapters talking about Jew and Gentile relationship in Christ. He spent all of this time talking about how they're justified by Jesus and how they've obeyed the gospel and how they have been made one in Jesus. If you go back and just start working your way through the book, you'll open with a great emphasis on the gospel. You'll open with chapter 1 saying the Gentiles were in sin. Chapter 2, the Jews were in sin. Chapter 3, they're both in sin. Chapter 4, Abraham is the father of the faithful, and so all of them need the faith of Abraham. Chapter 5, God justifies. He does that by faith through Jesus while everybody was helpless and hopeless. Chapter 6, how did they do it? They were baptized into the body of Christ. They were buried with him in the death. They rose and walked. Who did that? Everybody in the book. He marches all the way through the book like this, and he gets to chapter 12, and now he says, okay, how do you live it out? Notice verse number 1, therefore I urge you, therefore, therefore I urge you. A concluding remark with regards to all he's built upon. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, King James, logical, spiritual sacrifice. Your spirit, it's worthy, it's right, it's spiritual service of worship to God. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Question, why would they need to be concerned? with being conformed to the world. The world didn't go lightly on the Gentiles. It wants them back. The, the world didn't go lightly on the Jews. The Jews want them back. They would be receiving pressure from the outside, each probably telling the other, you know you can't trust them. We've never been able to trust them. And you know they're not good as you. They've never been as good as you. But now these two people have come from out there, and now they're in here. Paul says, brethren, you cannot be conformed to this world. 
you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that good and acceptable in the sight of God. In that chapter, he tells several things there to do. We'll notice a couple. Notice verse 10. I would urge Paul to saying then, in light of these things, make each other a priority. Verse number 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. What are we to do inside of this body now that we're here, that we all belong to Jesus? Make each other a priority. Be devoted to one another. How? In brotherly love, tenderly affectionate toward one another. What else should you do? He says, preferring one another. How? In honor. I honor you, therefore, I will lead the way and let you go. I prefer you. By all means, you go. The idea is giving honor and then showing deference. You, not me. Why don't you take the lead on this? Why don't you go? Why don't we do it your way? That's the idea. I'm going to prefer you. Let me just pause here and ask, can you see how all of the negative things would work against all of these positive things? Suppose someone is selfish. How are they going to do this? But it's not somebody else's place to fix selfishness in another person. Whose charge is that? Each individual last week would be charged with being a servant. Who can make you serve? Nobody. Who can give you a servant heart? Nobody. I guarantee you this, without that, how are you going to honor somebody else? How are you going to prefer somebody else? Inside of this body, everybody is autonomous, yes, and everybody has rights and privileges, yes, and everybody must then submit themselves, humble themselves. Everybody must do that. Why? Because we have to be devoted to each other in brotherly love. We have to prefer one another in honor. In fact, slide down to verse 16 and notice something else he says. I would urge, he is saying, see yourself as equal. See yourself in others. Verse number 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. You remember Matthew 7, 12. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You know what I think he could have said here just as well, and he does say it. He could have said, be like Jesus. Look at Philippians 2. Hold your hands there, Romans 12. Compare these two verses, these two sections. Look again at that verse, see what's in it, and then listen to what Paul writes to the brethren in Philippi. Same idea, same thing in mind. He says in verse number 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, do what? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, while it's true, yes, let's apply that to the world. Let's go out into the world and let our light so shine that men may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. By all means. But please understand, that would first be expressed inside of the body of Christ one to another. Who would get the first benefit and blessings of that? We would. One to another. Why? Because we're family. That's the way family behaves. Imagine the mindset that has to change when you've been a Gentile your whole life thinking one way about God, about self, and about others. And you've been a Jew your whole life thinking one way about God and about self and about others. And now you've obeyed the gospel and you have been brought into Christ. To whom would you look for how to behave? Jesus. What does Paul say in verse number five? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who didn't look out for his own personal interest? Who was a model of that? Who didn't do anything from vain conceit or seeking vain? Who didn't? Who never did that? Who served instead of demanding service? Who would that be? You just have to keep reading. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking upon himself the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What should you do and how are we to behave one toward another? Make each other a priority. Be devoted to each other in brotherly love and honor and see yourself like Jesus and behave like Jesus toward one another. Number two, honor the personal rights of others. Go back to Romans chapter 14, for there Paul talks about that. In fact, I think we've mentioned it, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, the latter half of that chapter. Paul talks about this personal liberty, and that's really kind of uh, what we've been talking about for the last several weeks is personal liberty. Coincidentally, I'm not sure if you can remember because uh, we're in a dream within a dream within a dream. So I'm not sure if you remember how many steps we're down, but this actually began being made in the image of God. Can you remember way, way back there? So personal liberty comes as a result of being made in the image of God. Personal liberty comes with all these rights and privileges. Personal liberty comes with responsibilities. Those responsibilities also then extend to others and how we're to behave toward one another. I'm talking to about three people who remember that. <laughs> but nevertheless, we are to honor each other's personal rights. This is Romans chapter 14. The Jews and the Gentiles, as you can imagine, would have had strong convictions made in their lives. They would have believed things and held things dear, and so would the Jews, and both would have now come into Christ. How were they to behave then relating to these things? Have you ever held something so dear to you that you just could not be moved off of it? I don't mean doctrine. I don't mean Jesus is the Son of God, baptism 
for the remission of sins, and all of, I don't mean those, by all means, hold those so dear, never be moved, by all means. I'm talking about convictions of a personal nature, something that you believe. I can't do that. I won't do that. I don't think you should do that. That doesn't seem right to me. I'm not going to engage one of those kinds of convictions. It's a matter of judgment. It's a matter of opinion, and it seems to rise to you to be a matter of my doctrine. I can't do it personally. My scruple is I cannot do that. Please understand, that is exactly what's being discussed. How are we to behave when we both feel that way about opposite things? Gentiles would have had convictions. What's on the, what's on the menu? Anything I want. You don't have any dietary restrictions, not a one. You're a Jew. You have dietary Absolutely, I have dietary restrictions. And I, where did you get them? I got them from God. I'm not going to eat that. You have in particular days that you hold as sacred? Not one of them. Every day that ends in Y. That's the one for me. That's the Gentile. But you're a Jew, and I do have certain days you can't, no, don't ask me. I'm not coming. I can't help you. I'm not. But now you're both in Christ. What are we to do? Read with me verse number one. First thing Paul says is now accept the one who is weak in faith. Accept him. But how do you accept him? But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. It's an unfortunate thing because sometimes I, I fear people know what they're doing. And, and what they're doing is violating verse number one. It's an unfortunate thing that in these areas of opinions and these areas of strong convictions and judgments, somebody will know that somebody else doesn't see it the way they see it. They'll know that. And, and instead of letting it be, they will induce a conversation. You know, I was wondering what you think about it. I was talking to somebody the other day, and guess what they said? What, what's, what's your view on that? Uh, it's not the case that maybe everybody knows when this happens, so I'm not accusing everybody of knowing, but sometimes people do know. And what are they hoping to do? They're hoping to start a conversation. Why? So that they can show the person the error of their way. It's a violation of verse 1. Receive one another. Yes but not for the purpose of judging his opinions. You're to receive him without that. But you're not supposed to do that. And then Paul explains, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's another one of those truths. Yes, you could project that out into the world and say, one employee talking to another, who are you? The boss didn't say it. Sure, you could take that to the work, but that's not what he's talking about. He identifies the master. The master is the Lord. The servant belongs to him. They're inside of Christ. And what he's asking is, who are you, Christian A., to judge Christian B in these matters of opinion when they both belong to Jesus. He'll judge. In fact, he has. God has accepted him. 
verse number five, he explains, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convicted in his own mind. What is my obligation to others within the body of Christ? To allow them the privilege of verse five. To allow them to be fully persuaded where? In their own mind. How am I to see you as equal to me in every way? What do you get to do? You get to make up your own mind. And I'm supposed to honor your right to do that. Do you know what I want from you? The exact same thing. You know what God is doing? He's protecting us from each other. How are we to retreat each other like family? Honor each other's rights. Verse number 13, Paul says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Please stay, stay in context. Stay in context. Because if these were matters of sin, you might read 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, I've judged already. Man has his father's wife, and you are not mourned. You puffed up. I've ju- Why? That's sinful. I've already judged. So he's not talking about that here. He's talking about these strongly held convictions. The problem is for some people, these convictions become so strong, they think it's sin. And therefore, they, they just have to teach it and preach it, and they violate other people's rights that God has given them. How are we to treat each other? We're to honor personal rights. Number three, we're to provide help for each other. We're to provide help. Their past probably was a challenge for them to overcome. The pressures of the world probably endured. And instead of being a stumbling block, if we had continued to read Romans 14, we would have read that, verses 7 through 9. We would have read Paul's very words, don't be a stumbling block to one another. Instead, love each other. They were not to judge each other's opinions. Instead, they were to think better of each other. They were actually to go a step further and even help each other. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1, Paul says, Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, caught up in a trespass, ye which are spiritual, what are you supposed to do with them? Restore such a one. The Bible has this fantastic way of not simply barking out instructions. It tells you what God wants from you, and then it tells you how to do it. It's so good when you get directions and instructions both on what to do and how to accomplish it. And that's what God does. How do you restore such a one? In the spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The idea is the setting of a bone. Imagine a broken bone being set. How would you want that done? Gently, please. If I could put in my order, I would like to order gentle. But if somebody just comes and grabs your broken arm and starts twisting to set it, you might take offense. You just might say, ouch, we might have two broken arms. (laughs) Maybe the better question would be, how would you like yours set? Number four, they would be patient with each other. We've read it already, but look back at Ephesians 4 and maybe just read it in another place. Look at Colossians 3. 
He says nearly the same thing there as he says in Ephesians. And again, it takes up so much material because it's everywhere in the New Testament. Verse number three, chapter 3 of Colossians, in verse number 12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. Can you imagine how many times they would have messed this up? Can you imagine how many missteps there would have been? Growth takes time, does it not? Chances are really good. The person you are today is not the person you were five years ago. Hopefully, you've been allowed time and space to grow. In that growth, you probably stumbled once or twice. Maybe you've made a mistake. Maybe you've slipped up. Can you imagine how many missteps there would have been within, these, within the church? When you're coming from Judaism, coming from the Gentile world, coming from idolatry, and now coming into Christ, and well, what does the Bible say? Be patient with each other. Forbear one another. How? In love. What are you going to need? Forgiveness. You're going to need to forgive each other because chances are good you're going to make some mistakes. And it might be the case that the world is standing at the ready saying, look, I told you. I told you you can't trust them. I knew it, you gullible. I, they sucked you in and you believed it and they talked about all of this wonderful stuff. And I told you. The Bible says be patient with one another. They were to use their power for good, and by power, I mean specifically their tongue. That's how the Bible describes it in Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. What may they messed up with most? Probably the tongue. They probably had some slippages with the tongue. They probably said some things that was taken one way. Maybe they told a joke that wasn't funny to the person who heard it. M maybe they said something, but that ain't the way we say it where I'm from. Maybe they weren't completely honest with each other. Ephesians 4.25 will say, speak truth with your neighbor. Do not lie one to another. Let every man speak truth with his neighbor. Why? He says, because we are members one of another. Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. They're, they weren't to lie on their brethren. They weren't to lie to their brethren. They were instead to be connected one toward another. He does say in the more positive things they were supposed to do, Colossians 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with fullness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. There is a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. The Hebrew writer says there, and let us stir one another up. Let us provoke one another to love 
and to good works. Application is easy to see, isn't it? That wherever the gospel is preached, wherever and whenever the gospel is preached, it will go out into the world, and there will be people from different groups, different backgrounds, different genders, different ages, different social economic levels. It will be people from all different walks of life. And what will happen? The gospel, we don't have another gospel. Everybody gets the same message. What will happen then? Some of them will obey it. And they will be translated out of darkness and into the kingdom. But that person is, and they're in. And that person is, and they're in. And that one, and that one, and that one. And all of them are different until they come into Christ. And now they're the same. What are they to do one toward another? They're to love each other. They're to prefer each other. They're to help each other. They're to use their tongue for good for each other. They're to forgive one another. I was thinking about this, and it almost sounds like, though I don't intend it to, it almost sounds like we can't make a mistake with one another. That's not at all what I mean. In fact, chances are good we will. Uh, if you've been in the church for any length of time, has anybody ever said anything to you that was not nice? If you've been in church for any length of time, has anybody ever done anything to you that was not nice? Has anybody ever behaved towards you in a way that's not in harmony with everything that we've said here this morning? Let me ask it another way. Have you ever said anything that's not nice to somebody? Have you ever done anything to somebody? Did you mean to do good and it worked out badly? Were you actually as sincerely as you know how to be only joking and it went badly? I do not want you to hear me say this morning that if anything like that ever happens, the church has failed and you should leave. Because unfortunately, that's the reaction that some people have. Should we be? Yes. Are we striving to be? Sure hope so. Can we be? Absolutely. But we are also a family. Anybody in your family ever said anything not nice? Anybody in your family ever did anything not nice? We don't leave the family, though, do we? We don't leave the family. What do we do? We love one another. We're patient with each other. We forgive each other. We hopefully learn to prefer one another. That's what's happening in the body. Amen. Two more passages. Only one will take about an hour, and we'll be done. <laughs> See, 
I was just kidding, see? It doesn't mean you no harm. But I would like to look at these two. They're both in Ephesians. We'll look quickly. Ephesians 4.32. Let me ask you something. Was this sermon about other people or about you? Ephesians 4.32, Paul sort of summarizes and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. What's our common thread that binds us and holds us? Jesus. Who is the one that reconciles us? Jesus. Who keeps us? Jesus. Who is the one we look to to behave like Jesus? He is our everything. And as God in Christ forgave us, we take that one to another and are kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Last passage is Ephesians 5 and verse 21. And these seem to be to me two good summaries of all that we've said. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What am I going to do with you? Love you, prefer you, help you, use my tongue for good towards you, forgive you, be patient with you. What are you going to do with me? The exact same thing. And God will be glorified and the world will see there is nothing like the church of our Lord. Amen. Now, the Christian this morning, we invite you to become one. In fact, more than invite, we beg, we plead, we absolutely hope that you will understand your need for Jesus because it's all about him and he is simply everything. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, then that is who is missing from your life. Jesus is the solution to your problems, and Jesus is the one who will help you in every area you need. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24. The Jews needed to hear it, the Gentiles needed to hear it, and the gospel went to both, and they believed it. They changed their minds. They repented, had thoughts about Jesus or none at all, but they changed them. They repented. We all have to. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. You can die. The old man can be put to death. We bury him in Christ with his watery grave, and we rise and walk in newness of life. And that's where we are with obligations and responsibilities to each other and to glorify God in this world. If you've never done that, friends, you need to. But if you have, Paul said it in Ephesians 4, let us walk worthy of our calling to glorify God and love one another as God has loved us. If we can help you in any way this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.